Life is short, seize the moment. This is the philosophy according to the world. Fortunately, that kind of wisdom also gives us a perspective for us Christians on what to do with our short lives. For example, we see the world say, life is short, play hard. Our life is short, so love and laugh more. Life is short, break the rules. Or life is short, party hard. I like this one. Life is short, eat dessert first. Well, that is true. Life is short and fragile and quite unpredictable. Now, this is more of a somber tone than eating dessert or partying hard. But that is what the Bible teaches. In this letter, James explains this truth. This truth that life is short. Can either give to a person a perspective of God and ourselves in a biblical way or in terms of the world to live in a self-reliant, self-centered life from here and now. Knowing this truth can either lead to put all our hope on God or all our hope on ourselves. And so in our passage for this afternoon, for the book of James, we are going to hear instructions on how we are supposed to live and how we are supposed to think, how we are supposed to speak in light of the tension that life is short. We are, in fact, in the series of the wisdom for the church. So yeah, it would be good to receive heavenly wisdom in light of this fact. Life is short. So please turn with me to James chapter 4, and we'll be studying verses 13 to 17. James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Hear now the infallible word of God. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Amen. Let us come to our Lord in prayer. Father, we rejoice in Christ and we rejoice in him that our hope and eternity is secure. And Father, even as we try to understand this text and understand that we are like a mist that is there for a little while and then vanishes, help us, Father, how we ought to live on this earth for your glory. Help us, Father, what it means to live according to your will. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember, we are in the section of the book of James where he has been talking to us about the problems in the life of the congregation. So James is probably writing to a group of churches and he's addressing the issues in the life of this congregation. And what we have seen in the past weeks is that how James addresses particularly the issue of proud speech. Speech, 
words coming out of people's mouths that reflect the pride in their heart and the way that is hurting the churches. So he has talked about how the tongue is the source of all kinds of evil. He has talked about conflict in the church and the way they speak negatively about each other and judge one another. And in each case, James has prescribed humility as the cure for their problem. So he urged the church to produce meekness. He urged them to humble themselves before the Lord. And last week, when he is talking about the problem of speaking evil against one another and judging each other, in essence, he says, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to judge your brother? God alone is the judge. And in our text for this morning, he addresses another kind of problematic speech in the church. We see that in a way, the people in the church are talking about their plans for the future. In this little paragraph from verses 13 to 17, we have an illustration of sorts. We have James painting a picture of a very normal life. The very normal life of a businessman. This man, if you are looking down in the text, makes plans. He relocates with his family and he does business and he hopes for success. It is very normal. Well, at least in the UAE, it is normal. Not the part of doing business probably, but the part of planning to move to this country, hoping to find a job and relocate the family and be successful in life. Back then during the times of James, it would have been rare to have these kind of options. Most people there didn't have a choice in what they did or where they lived or where they would possibly move. So James is talking to a specific group of the society during those times. People with options and the means to accomplish it. He's speaking primarily to wealthy people, but in our day, that's all of us. But let me be clear, when James is talking about these people, he's not condemning rich people or businessmen. He's not suggesting Christians should stop making plans that Christians should stop doing their jobs or hope to succeed. But rather, James is confronting those who do these very normal things in a casual way. Now, what is wrong with that? Well, James is saying here that the way that they are speaking about their plans is not consistent with an important reality. And that is there in verse 14, the reality that they have no idea what tomorrow will bring. It is in a spirit of self-confidence. Now let's see that self-confidence in this text. Let's look at verse 13. It starts by, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. And James tells, You who say, We will go into such and such a town, Oh, will you? Verse 14, you say this, but yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. The truth of the matter is, though you are making your plans, you do not know. Though you say you will spend a year and trade and make profit, but you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Forget about what will happen after a year, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. It's made clearer in verse 16. It says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. 
and all such boasting is evil. And then in verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do, but in contrast, as these fail to do it, to them it is sin. They miss the mark. You see, James is rebuking any kind of living where planning for today or tomorrow, planning that stems from our ability to determine the course of our future events. A kind of thinking in which God is not in the picture. He calls their self-confidence arrogant, evil. This is the kind of earthly unspiritual, demonic wisdom that James talks about in chapter 3, verse 15. A wisdom that is natural to the people of this world, but that which is so contradictory to those people who are regenerated by the Spirit of God. In their self-confidence or self-reliance, they have an underlying attitude or presumption about life. And they are presumptuous about their life. And we can see in verse 13, he says, You who say today or tomorrow, we will go. We will live tomorrow. We will be living a year from now. We will be making profits a year from now. And he says, that is presumptuous. They are presumptuous about their choices. They say, we relocate for a year and we are going to do business. We are masters of our lives. All we need to do is make the decision, and lo and behold, it is going to happen. And they're presumptuous about their abilities. They presume that they will succeed because they think we can do this. So we can see when James says that they're boasting in their arrogance. So James has set up this for us. We make plans, but ultimately we are not in control. And for us to understand what James is saying, I would like for us to see three truths from this text. One, God is in control of our future. Two, we plan with humility. Three, life on earth is temporary. I repeat that. God is in control of our future. We plan with humility. And thirdly, life on earth is temporary. God controls the future. That's our first point. James made this clear that we do not control our lives. We are not the ones who have control over the things that happen to us. The remedy to this kind of boastful thinking is knowing that we are nothing in front of an almighty God. Look at verse 14. For what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now, which one of you woke up this morning and thought to yourself, looking at the mirror, telling to yourself, you know what, Sam? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Did you think that way? I did not. No one will think like this. That is not how we usually think of ourselves. We wake up and tell ourselves, I'm going to do this and that and that thing. James is asking this question, what is your life? It is good to think about it for a moment. This is the area we sometimes or often want to think that our life is steady. I think that technology, the leaps in medical advances, scientific learning, and relative prosperity all conspire to make us feel we are in the driver's seat of our lives. But we are not. 
Now, friends, let us, let's pause for a moment and think about it. Oprah Winfrey says, it is confidence in our bodies, minds, and spirits that allow us to keep looking for new adventures. It is confidence on our minds, bodies, and spirits. Even every self-help guru or every positive thinker will spew that same kind of lies. Or do you know this way of thinking? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is the kind of thinking that feels very empowering, isn't it? It is owed to self-reliance and self-sufficiency and autonomy. But that's a lie. Or we as Christians, we might not think like that, but a more subtle way that we might think or believe is that this belief in a particular kind of God, one who exists, who created the world and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in our affairs, especially affairs in which we would prefer not to have God involved. Most of the time, the God of this faith keeps a safe distance from us. We know everything could change in an instant without our planning, without our knowledge, so we keep God on standby. This way of thinking is called moralistic, therapeutic deism. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when he is needed to resolve the problem. So is that how we think as Christians? Now friends, we have to evaluate ourselves if we do think like this, as if we are the captain of our souls, or do we think God is in this way of an errand boy who is there waiting to answer at our beck and call? But at the end of the day, do you presume that you are in control of your situations? Of course not. We simply don't control the future. There are things that happen to us beyond our power. James says that our lives are a mist. Now look around this room and imagine for a moment that your spouse or your sweet little children or your brother or your sister or your friends or your pastors are nothing but a mist. They are here now, but in the process of vanishing. It is not a question of if, but a question of when. And so we don't control the future. So who really does? James tells us in verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The important question is not what you expect to plan. What will ultimately decide whether or not your plans come to fruition is whether or not the Lord wills it. He is in essence saying that the Lord is in control whether we live or whether we live to do this or that. James is saying that everything depends on whether or not the Lord wills it. This is a bigger point here that we are not in control of what happens to us, but God is. This is a pretty significant theology. At every point in the Bible, God is shown to be in power, 
control and authority over everything that exists. Man sees himself as big and God as small. This is at the heart of our broken relationship with God. And, in the, and it is in every single man, in every single woman and child. Here is what Bible says about us. They know God, but they do not honor him as God, nor give thanks. You see, that's the truth about us in our sin. We know God, but we do not honor him as God by not recognizing that he is in control of everything. Human arrogance and self-reliance are a rejection of God. And the irony here is that James is writing this to believers, that the 12 tribes in dispersion, to dear brothers, and we know that from in verse 17 in the context where he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James is writing to those who know what is right, but they live their lives in self-confidence. They live their lives as if God is not in control. They are practical atheists. Alec Mortier says, it is sort of self-sufficiency, self-importance, and planning that keeps God for Sunday and looks on Monday through Saturday as mine. Could this be true of us? Let's pause for a moment and think about it. And so, to this self-confident in verse 13, to those who say they will do this or that, we are to say, if the Lord wills. And we say, if the Lord wills. But this is not a religious phrase we are required to use at the end of every sentence. Well, tomorrow I am planning to go to Lulu. Lord willing. If the Lord wills. Tomorrow, I plan to attend the Bible study, if the Lord wills. What James is talking about here is that you really believe in your heart that you might go to Lulu tomorrow, or you might not, based on the will of God. So James wants us to come to the point to say truly, if the Lord wills. We don't merely preface our plans with if the Lord wills, but we want that embedded in our character, the knowledge that our lives are under God's control. You know, friends, we ought to recognize that we don't know what tomorrow will be like. If God but for a moment withdrew his hand of providence and sustaining grace, not only would you with the things you think you can control fly out of control, you yourself will cease to exist. The fact of the matter is that you don't control the smallest thing in your lives. God does, because God is so consistently kind and gracious to sinful men and women who think they have control over their lives when they actually don't have. You see, God's plan for the world are very specific. It is God's providence. God doesn't just set the world on a general trajectory and then leave the specifics and details up to chance or up to human decision. But instead, Ephesians 1 verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
So what things he works according to the purpose of his will? The answer is all things. There is a purpose for everything. And he works everything to the end of that purpose. That is what Jesus is talking to his disciples. That God is the one who clothes the grass of the field. That he feeds the birds of the air. Jesus is emphasizing the care of God, care of God over the small and insignificant things of this world. This is what he means when he talks about that the airs on our head are numbered. The point is that in his care and in his knowledge, there is his sovereignty. There is nothing about the hair on our head that God does not know. The kind of thinking that is up to me to figure out the things in my life and I am to determine my own fate is so pagan now. We will see in Acts 17, Apostle Paul tells the crowd in Athens speaking of God that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Paul is saying that the plans for his creation includes both when we live and where we live. And so, friend, it is no accident that you live in this time, at this moment in history, in this place. That means that we can trust in God's sovereign providence guiding us. It is no chance that you are here listening to God's word today. Even in our sinful and unwise decisions and in the sinful and unwise decisions of others, we can know that God is in control. And we saw in our scripture reading, which Pastor Will read it out for us, that what God intends to happen, it happens. In the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps the most powerful king of earth at the exact moment in history, Nebuchadnezzar reflects about God. He says in Daniel 4, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or in Psalm 115 verse 3, summarizes it simply, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So you see the point? There is nothing that God wants to do that he cannot do. There is nothing that frustrates his purposes. There is nothing that prevents him from accomplishing his plans. And if we fail to understand that God is in control, do you know what the danger is, my friends? First, we will be tempted to take pride. So when things go well in your life, when things are prospering, when you succeed, when you get into college of your choice, when you land a job or the promotion, when you buy the house, when you get the girl, you're going to be tempted to think that you have done it all by yourself. You're going to be tempted to think that this is the proof of how wonderful your plans are. That was the same problem with these rich people during the times of James. And you can see how it short-circuits the gratitude towards God that you are supposed to give. 
If you think all is my doing, thankfulness would be something very far off in our worship. And so, as we come to this passage in James and recognize that God is in control of our future, James clearly says that we don't and our life is a mist, and it is the Lord who controls our future. And so, if that is the case, how, what should be our response? We plan with humility. That is our second point. If God is in control of the future and we are not, how then shall we live? Is James now saying, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be? As some sort of fatalist? No, he's not. He doesn't say, it is all in the Lord's hands, so don't bother. It doesn't matter. Don't make plans. Just sit still, watch what happens. Go with the flow. Take what life gives and get along with it. No, James here tells us to make plans, but simply to make them in the light of God's sovereignty. The Bible commends the wisdom of careful planning. We see that in Proverbs 14, verse 15. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. In another place in Proverbs, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Clearly, God commends proper planning, but what James wants us to see here is that as we make our plans and as we communicate about them, we should do with a healthy dose of humility. You see that in verse 15. When we plan, we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, your boast, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Our plans should be tempered with this truth that even though we have planned, we lack the power to see it through. We should acknowledge that we cannot know what will happen. Our plans are ultimately dependent upon the Lord. So God's providential control over everything does not mean that we shouldn't make plans. In fact, the only reason we can make plans is because we know God is in control. Because God is at work. Because God is holding everything together. I have a chance at making plans that correspond to God's reality. We all presume upon Lord's upholding and carrying along of the world. And this is the reason we make plans. And so James wants us to plan with humility by acknowledging the future. So practically, one way to do that to live in light of this truth is to simply live in the way James tells us to do. Cultivate the habit qualifying your plans with the phrase, if the Lord wills. So what we should learn is that we should watch the way we speak and check the way our heart responds to any particular situation at any given time. That all our plans are dependent on the Lord. And this is what James is pointing us to. And that is why he says in verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is not some optional exercise. The, this way of thinking and communicating about future, having this attitude towards God, towards our future, is our duty. 
Our failure to acknowledge our Lord's doing is arrogant boasting and evil. This phrase in verse 17 could be talking about this whole section of James, the humility required of us as we live together before God, this humility that ought to control our speech. But it is a powerful picture there that sin is not merely doing things that are wrong, but sin is also a failure to do things that are right. There are sins of omissions. So if you go to someone and say something cruel or unkind, that is a sin of commission. You've committed a sin, but also, but that also is failing to use the words that encourage people. Failing to use the words that encourage humility and trust in the Lord, that is also a sin, a sin of omission. You did not do what you're supposed to do. So you might ask, what is the will of God, Pastor Sam? According to verse 17, knowing what the right thing is to do. And how do we know what is the right thing to do? By looking at God's word. That is where you will find the will of God. So in humility, when we plan, we seek diligently to know God's word. It should not be a secondary thing in our thoughts. The will of God must always be primary. And the will of God is not only in his permissive will, but also in what pleases God. What this means is that not planning how you like and slapping the phrase, if the Lord wills, but planning with the will of God in picture so that before our plans are formed, what is the most important to us is that which is pleasing in the sight of God. And even after we have made our plans like that, we need to hold those plans with an open hand and realize that even though I have done my best to understand what God's will is in this matter, I want to please him in this matter. God still has the authority to not see it to pass. So our heart posture always need to be like this. Lord, I have made plans with you in my mind, wanting to do what pleases you, but if in any way I have misunderstood you, Lord, please, please let me step out of the way and do what you wouldn't want me to do. Let me not miss the mark. Let me not sin. Help me to know what the right thing is to do. So, so that from the beginning to the end and all the way through the primary issue is what is the will of God? Those of you who are young here, teenagers, I want to ask this to you. Be honest with yourselves and think about it. Have you thought about your future? Is that how you have been thinking? You know, young men or men especially, I wonder, do you, any of you even stop and wonder or pray or ask whether God might want you in the ministry? One of the things I'm finding as I'm talking to young men is that they don't even bring up the possibility. What are you going to do? Most of the times it will be, well, I don't know. But sometimes I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to major in this, this is what I'm planning to do for my career. But do you even stop and ask God? Are you praying about it? Are you asking God to direct you? Parents, do you talk to your children? Are you encouraging them to pray about your future and seek the Lord's will? The will of God must be primary. And sometimes discerning God can lead to anxiety. Friends, if you're anxious about the future, 
if your life if your life lives in the fear of what may happen if you obsess with the choices that you have and the plans that you have to make could it be that you are taking responsibility to things that you are not meant to take where is humility in your life but when we take things into our hand in our anxiety we are spewing evil and that is ungodly and finally we need to recognize that the life on this earth is temporary i mean that is really got to be in our thoughts instead the scripture says you ought to say if the lord wills does he say we will do this or that if you look carefully what you see in verse 15 if the lord wills we will live clearly what he means by that is if the lord wills i will be here tomorrow my very existence on this earth is in his hand my presence on this earth is subject to lord's plans there is a time fixed in god's plan when my life on this earth will be over and i don't know when it is but he does and so every day i got to realize something that today if i wake up in the morning today is a gift from god and it must be in a way that pleases god and i must not presume upon tomorrow some of you might say well this is so sad way to live our lives oh not at all you know what that means is that i am going to live today in the light of eternity it doesn't mean that i am not going to plan for tomorrow it doesn't mean i don't have plans for next year but i'm going to recognize in my own mind and heart that all of these plans are subject to the will of god and it might be that god plans to not let me see these plans come to fruition i may not be here i may make plans for my children i may make plans for their future but i've got to realize something i may not be present to see them walk into that future not taking time for granted but making the most of our time now psalm 90 verse 10 the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80 yet their span is but toil and trouble they are soon gone and we fly away who considers the who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you so teach us to number our day that we may get a heart of wisdom you will not live the wise life you will not you will not present to god a wise heart if you are going to live thinking that you are going to live on this earth forever but if you realize that today might be the last on this earth for me this might be the last sermon which i will ever have a privilege to preach then i preach and will live in such a way we will live in such a way with our family our children our friends with eternity in sight and if you are going to live like this that you can live a wise life you won't live a presumptuous life filled with sins so first god is in control and so we plan with humility knowing that the life on this earth is temporary so friends let me ask you a question what kind of dreams do you dream 
What is your goal? What is your ambition in life? What do you really want to have accomplished? When your life on this earth is over, if you have a good contingency plan with a good amount in the bank, and that is all you have, you're going to be miserable. If you have a great reputation among men, and if that is all you have, you are to be most pitied. But if you live in light of eternity, you know what really matters? That your ways are pleasing to the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. That is the singular aim. Not many aims and ambitions. And a well-rounded one with utmost importance to be well-pleasing to Him. Is that how you're living? And any amount of thinking apart from this is arrogant and boasting. If I think in any other way that is described in verse 15, it is sinful thinking, sinful living. What arrogance is it is to be in the sinful, dying, failing bodies and to think that we can be captain of our souls? But people do. That is why a belief in the sovereign providence of God daily is not lofty theological thinking. But it is necessary, it is comforting, and it is obedient living. You see, a person who really understands the sovereign providence of God is the one who really understands his own smallness, finitude. It's the person who rejects that God and thinks he's in control. He is sovereign, really believes that they are bigger than they are. Now, but then how about things when they're not going well? When situations and circumstances in life seem to be getting worse and worse. When you're living according to God's will, but circumstances are becoming hard. What does Apostle Paul tell us? We know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to this purpose. Again, these words that we know very well were not cheap for Paul. He was a man who knew tremendous suffering for the sake of Christ. God is in control and his plans are never frustrated and his plans are always good and always loving for his people and Paul knew that. So he lived then that way and he ascribed glory to God. And that's why he was able to say, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now friends, this is good news for us. And so if you have trouble believing this, I would encourage you to look to Christ. I think it is there we see God's plan unfolding in all of its glory. When we think in a bigger picture, what is God's plan? It's the redemption plan. We look to the cross of Christ and we see that it is for our blessing and for our good. As Jesus died on the cross, it must have seemed to his disciples like that the plan of God was very much out of control. That is not what they would have chosen. That is not what they would have done. Jesus had come to deliver his people, but here he was in the hands of cruel men 
betrayed, delivered over to his enemies, dying in the most humiliating way possible. And if you push the pause button at that moment, God's plan seems like a cruel joke. Never before God seems so defeated, but in fact, nothing can be further from that truth. Because the cross of Christ was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. God planned that he would send his son into the world to save his people from their sins. That's why even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup for me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see that? The holy anger of God against all of the sins of all of God's people. We deserved eternal death, punishment, justice to what we have done, and to the things as James says that we ought to have done, which we failed to do. And Jesus, on the cross, took God's punishment for all of that. And even by doing so, he did the Father's will. But Jesus was raised from dead in victory, and by his death, he accomplished a miraculous redemption for his people. And so in Acts chapter 2, Apostle Peter looked back on those events, and he tells the crowds in Jerusalem, in Acts 2 verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Friends, do you see that these men crucified and killed Jesus? But this awful deed that they did was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so what does that mean? Well, it means if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, God has planned to send his son to die on the cross to pay for the sins of anyone who will turn to him from their rebellion against God and put their trust in him. And friend, I would invite you into that marvelous plan this afternoon. I would plead with you to stop resisting God. Stop pretending that you are in control of your life. And instead, turn to him in humility and put your trust in Jesus. And for those of us who are Christians, this means we can totally trust him. We can know if Jesus obeyed the will of the Father, we can also obey the will of our Father. If the Lord wills, if Jesus wills, and if we are under his will, we can live for eternity. Think of all the plans that you have. Plans for things that you really love. Your kids, your marriage, your career, your education. The only thing that you can know that things might not go exactly like you have planned. God will take things away. He will give you things that you don't imagine. He will move things according to his own course. And we can confidently say, if the Lord wills, because in Christ Jesus, like Paul, we can have confidence and say that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. So we can take comfort in that. And even in the midst of our trials, live for his glory. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for Jesus who obeyed the Father's will even to the point of death, giving his life on the cross so that we sinners can now be in Christ, be reconciled to you and live according to your will. So we pray that, Lord, that you would give us grace to not live as if we are in control. But help us, Lord, to know that our life on this earth is temporary and that you are a good and loving God and we can live in a way that pleases you and honors you. Help us, Father, to live in this way by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.